Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the A&J Tunes podcast. My name is Anthony. I am joined alongside James, as always. James, how are you doing, man? Good, man. I just can't wait to get into this. Now, Anthony, we've got a special artist this week. Her name is Lana Del Rey. I mean, we always have special artists on this podcast, James. But you're right. We are covering Miss Lana Del Rey. Now, you might be wondering... Why didn't you guys do this like three weeks ago when her album came out? I have to apologize. This episode is going to go up kind of late. But that's besides the point. I mean, and we've we've had more time to think about it. Because we see, you see, we love our, our listeners. And we wanted to do more research to be better prepared for this podcast. Am I right, Anthony? Of course, James. <laughs> we always do research for these podcasts. And I feel like with the extra time, we've been able to let you guys fully enjoy the album for what it's worth and be able to really soak in all that Lana Del Rey had to offer with this particular project. So let's get right into it, shall we? The album name, for those of you that don't know, Chemtrails Over the Country Club. Now, that name is actually pretty significant, but I'll get into that a little bit later. So for those of you who don't know, this is her seventh studio album now. And it's very interesting because it peaked at number two on the Billboard 200 charts. And guess what was number one? I have no idea. Anthony, let us know. It was the previous podcast we did, James. <gasps> Finally. <laughs> Justin Bieber's Justice album. Yeah, that was number one. And then Chemtrails Over the Country Club is number two. Now, the last time I checked the Billboard 200 charts, it took a bit of a steep decline. It was number 40 the last time I checked. But overall, it's still a great album. Now, according to Lana Del Rey herself... Most of this album is apparently about, and I'm quoting here, her stunning girlfriends and beautiful siblings, Hmm. which is a very interesting subject line. But many people believed with this particular album, it opened her audience to a more vulnerable and emotional side that she hadn't previously displayed with her previous six albums. Now, I will add, she comes across as emotionless sometimes in her songs, like, you ever listen to Summer Bummer, the one that includes ASAP Rocky? I have. Like, it generally sounds like she doesn't even want to be there. And, like, she's at the studio and, like, oh, yeah, let me record this real quick. So for her to get emotional, it's actually, it's something that I, either she really hides it to a really good level. Or maybe it's something that she's improvised on. But I'm, as I always iterate, like, when artists are flexible, either in, in the genres of music or in how, how they range and create the lyrics, I admire it. Because it just goes to show that they can take it up a level if they become irrelevant or if people aren't feeling their music anymore yeah but you can argue that this kind of emotionless cinematic lana del rey is the one that honestly brought her to fame at this particular moment in time so this album kind of takes a shift away from that approach but it still works for her nonetheless there's a lot of great songs on here i'll get into that in just a second But for those of you that don't know, Lana Del Rey primarily does this genre of music called Americana. Now, for those of you that don't know, Americana basically refers to American pop culture. And with her discography, she has mainly focused on 1950s, 1960s American pop culture. A very interesting time frame, nonetheless. Obviously, a lot of major events were happening at that time. But nonetheless, it's not... A direction that many of artists have taken in the past and i think it was the right kind of fit for her in terms of comparing herself to other female pop artists that kind of came up around that time 
Now, with this particular album, it was mainly produced by her and someone else by the name of Jack Antonoff. Now, for those of you who are wondering, why is that name so vaguely familiar? It's because he's produced for other people like Taylor Swift, most notably, as well as Lord in the band Fun. Now, as I said before, she kind of takes this very cinematic style where when I listen to her music, it sounds like I'm listening to a movie. Yo, Loki, it's like a creepy. She's kind of creepy, man. I'm not going to lie. Like, it's never too late. To be who you want to be. It sounds like, okay, you know, where is this, the serial killer waiting up behind the door, you know? But that style, like like we'd mentioned before, she's very unique. Like, I don't, I don't think of anyone else when I hear that kind of voice. And it's not that she, like, varies a lot in her tone. It's almost always a consistent way of singing. Now, if you hear Lana Del Rey get very soprano about it, like Sia in, in Chandelier, mm -hmm. I'd be shocked. Because it's always consistent, I feel like every every song I tune in, if I ever hear someone sound like they're going to put themselves to sleep, it's probably Lana Del Rey. Exactly. But when we think of Lana Del Rey, we think of her for two reasons. One, that very cinematic kind of emotionless style. But number two, we also think of her as a great songwriter. You know, I mentioned this a lot with Taylor Swift. And for those of you that haven't checked out that episode, please check it out. It's a great episode that we did. But... With Lana Del Rey, she's been able to fit in because of that unique kind of broke pop style, which for those of you who don't know, it's basically combining like classical music and rock. So it's kind of like a fusion genre, so to speak. And when she mainly focuses on things like sadness, melancholy, very kind of dark, depressing things, you know, we think of The Weeknd, for example, that kind of goes along a similar route. I think she just had the right kind of style going into pop, per se. Because in all honesty, when you think of Lana Del Rey and her type of music, you don't see anyone else do anything that is remotely similar to what she's doing now. Yeah. You can think maybe Billie Eilish, if we're talking about creating a new avenue within female pop, so to speak, or just pop in general. But when we talk about Lana Del Rey... When you listen to one of her songs, it's unmistakable that you know it's her and you know it's her style. And at the end of the day, she's been able to be very successful off of that. Now, it's interesting because when we think of like the big names in pop, a lot of people might forget about Lana Del Rey, in all honesty. Because when I was doing research and I was looking at a lot of her top hits, at least when it comes to the Billboard Hot 100 charts... You may be surprised to know this, James, but she only has one song in the top 10 all time in her career. Really? Yeah, it's crazy to think about. And it's funny because the song that ended up peaking in the top 10, and I'll reveal it a little bit later, it's not even one of her, how do I say this? Like, it's not even an original version. It's a remix, actually, wow. which is crazy. But going back to the album for just a second... She was originally going to call the album White Hot Forever. Hmm. And she ended up changing it to Chemtrails Over the Country Club. Obviously, that's the title that I got released under. That's a long name, bro. It is pretty long in all honesty. But she has a lot of long title names, which we'll get into throughout this podcast. But 
Originally, this album was supposed to be released back in early September. It ended up not happening, mainly because of COVID, also because there were a lot of vinyl shortages, for those of you that still listen to vinyl these days. Really? Yeah. You know, when you have CDs, you have vinyls, you have even cassettes, and obviously streaming. A lot of artists, I'm actually surprised, a lot of artists still kind of put out different versions of their albums like they'll have one for vinyl they'll have one for cassette they'll have one for cds and so on and i understand the financial point of view where it's like you want to make as much money as you can and obviously if you have all these versions out there although yes not everyone might listen to those versions it helps you regardless because yeah it costs a certain amount to produce it the amount of people that end up buying this album will vastly supersede that amount. I agree, because like, now that I think about it, I don't even know if it's tailored to her her style. But when you said that she did 50s, 60s music, I think about it. Uh, sorry, it's 50s and 60s themed music. I think, you know, they didn't have CD players. They didn't, have, they didn't even have Walkmans, which are ancient now. They had the vinyl. And so I feel like, I don't know if that's a correlation, but if so, that's genius. But if not, I'm probably overthinking this. Now, also, any form of media is good exposure. It costs the artist less to produce that than it does to market themselves in advertisements. And so maybe some people keep it as collectibles, while others, they genuinely use it. I mean, you never know. And as an artist, you always have to have that open mind because God knows if she could be the next vinyl superstar, you know, and research like that. Now, one thing that I've noticed is like a lot of old heads, like old school music is is a reappearing in like the way The Weeknd makes it 80s themed. Mm-hmm. Bruno Mars, when he did, um, what was it? Give me, give me, give me your attention, baby. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I don't know the name of that song. But the point of the matter is like old sounding songs are reemerging now. And so like if you can have songs on vinyls, then, then that's like just a blast from the past. And that's a genius marketing strategy. Exactly. But... Pop has this weird thing where it's very cyclical in the sense that a lot of old trends from like early music are reappearing. Like with 2010s, it was mainly EDM, that very kind of hard hitting drum, that kind of electronic dance stuff. Now, obviously this year we've mentioned it a bunch of times. It's literally a meme at this point. It's literally been all about the 80s, right? The Weeknd this year, Dua Lipa this year, a lot of other artists have gone to that 80s style. And even with Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack with Leave the Door Open, 70s Funk. So a lot of artists have been kind of going back to kind of older styles of music. But Lana Del Rey has been going 50s, 60s themed music for her entire career. So she's been very consistent in that kind of deal. And I think... It makes sense because when you listen to a Lana Del Rey album or a Lana Del Rey track, you know what you're getting most of the time. It's very similar in style. Sometimes that hinders, let's say, critic perspective because you don't want too many songs sounding too similar. But at the end of the day, it's helped her become the artist and the singer that she is today. And if she can continue to be successful releasing that kind of style, she's going to continue doing it. And going back to the album for just a second, right? There is actually another reason why the album was delayed 
was because they didn't know whether or not the song called Dealer was going to be on the album. Honestly, I don't know too much about that particular song. Reason being, it ended up making the cut in the album. So, at the end of the day, I think she's happy with what she ended up putting out there. And it's funny because this album is actually not going to have that very long of a shelf life. Because she's going to release another album called Rock Candy Sweet in the beginning of June. So, realistically speaking, this album is only going to have about three months or so of shelf life before this new album comes out. And whether or not that's what she intended or if it's because of all the delays, we don't know. But I'm curious if you think that's going to hurt the overall success of this album. Definitely. The bottom line, like, it's like coming out with a video game. Okay, I'll give you an analogy. Imagine if you came out with, um, let's see, GTA 7 or whatever, right? <laughs> and then three months later, GTA 8. All the investment into that original game is just wiped out by a newer, you know, the new toy on the shelf. And I feel like people won't truly appreciate it. Now, I'll go back to something we mentioned in a few podcasts before with Kendrick Lamar. People are re-listening to this, his latest album because there's nothing new yet. If you were to release something new and then release something three months later after that, that intermittent album would never get any appreciation. I feel like with Lana Del Rey, she's wise enough to know that that's not something that you can should plan. But I guess we'll never know whether or not that was the intention. But I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't have done that, honestly. I would have waited until probably January. It's weird, though, because when I asked you that question, I kind of realized that... Other artists have actually been successful with that kind of format. We were talking about it last week with, or excuse me, in the last episode with Justin Bieber and how he released Justice a little after a year that Changes came out. Yeah. And although you can argue whether or not Changes was a good album to begin with, they're both relatively successful in terms of sales. I mean, now what? Go ahead. You mentioned that changes. Sorry, you mentioned that Justice was in was the top album. So yeah, it was relatively successful. But I don't think that's to do with the fact that it was the music. I just think of who released it. You know, and that's what it comes down to. You can argue whether or not it was really popular because it was Justin Bieber or because people actually thought it was good music. But even taking Justin Bieber aside, we talk about Taylor Swift, right? With Folklore and Evermore. Both of those albums were surprised released relatively within the same year. And you can argue they've both done relatively successful. Now, whether or not it's the same deal, is it because it's Taylor Swift and she's a household name? Or because people actually like the two albums? Me personally, I think it's more because of the quality rather than the star power compared to the Justin Bieber case. But I think with Lana Del Rey, regardless of when she ended up releasing or when she planned to release Rock Candy Sweet, I think either way, both albums would have their success. And I, you can argue whether or not it would have an impact, but at the end of the day, I think both would end up being relatively successful. Now, the singles on Chemtrails Over the Country Club. Obviously, the title track, Chemtrails Over the Country Club. Let Me Love You Like a Woman white dress and tulsa jesus freak 
a very interesting title. Now, here's another interesting little nugget for those of you that don't know. The eighth song on the album, which is called Yosemite, it was originally going to go in Lana Del Rey's fifth studio album, Lust for Life. However, she spoke about in an interview how that particular song was too happy for that particular album's taste. (laughs) So she saved it for this album and decided to release it now. I mean, if there's an artist that would tell you that, whoa, that was too happy, we need to depress it a little more. It would be Lana Del Rey. For sure. And she ends the album with a cover of Joni Mitchell's 1970 song called For Free. And Lana Del Rey's version features two artists, Zelda Day and Wyatt's Blood. Now, let's talk about the singles for a minute here. Let Me Love You Like a Woman. It was the lead single on the track, the fourth song overall. Critics praised this song for its songwriting, but they felt that the production was too similar to other work she'd done in the past. And now you can argue whether or not that's true, or it's because of the fact that she's had the same consistent style for most of her career. But overall, out of those four singles, it's pretty good for what it's worth. Is it the best one? No. But it's satisfying enough, so to speak. Chemtrails Over the Country Club, it's mainly about chemtrails. And this is where I said the title is very interesting. Now, for those of you that don't know, chemtrails and the idea of chemtrails is actually part of a conspiracy theory. Really? Yeah, where basically, in a nutshell, it states that condensation trails in the air are actually chemtrails consistent of chemicals left by airplanes that are sprayed onto the public for criminal reasons. Now, whether or not that's actually true, you can take it for a grain of salt if you believe it or not, but it's mainly a quiet track overall. It does a very stark contrast between chemtrails with summer days in the suburbs. Very Lana Del Rey-esque. It seems like the type of song she would write and produce. Definitely. Now, again, it's interesting because some people do believe that the style of this particular track, in particular the echoed vocals and the lengthy outro, Mm -hmm. is very reminiscent of the style that was present in her most recent album prior to this one, Norman Effing Rockwell. (laughs) So, again, is it a lack of stylistic variance that kind of hinders this album? Maybe, maybe not. You know, that's the funny thing. Because, like, an artist can never please everyone. Some will say, you've changed. I want the real Lana Del Rey. And others will be like, can she do anything else? Why is she always writing the same song? Every song sounds the same. You know, like, every DaBaby song sounds exactly the same. I've seen that so many (laughs) times that it's literally a meme at this point. Like, I used to say that, but then I realized that that's his style. And the next time I hear someone sing like that, I'm going to think, what is he doing? He's ripping off of the baby. So with Lana Del Rey, like, if she suddenly starts singing like BTS Dynamite, all high-pitched and happy, I'm going to be like, what happened to her? Is she okay? <laughs> and also, I do want to say, the thing I like about the music fan, uh, fandom 
is that they make a lot of stuff up. I don't know if chemtrails is truly what that description is. That's just a conspiracy theory, as you mentioned before. But one thing I do want to know is if Lana Del Rey believes it, or, or if it was intentional to have that kind of double entendre. Because like, if an artist can make people think one thing and to convey something else and never clear it up, people will always be talking about the album. And that's, that's a good marketing technique, now that I think about it. Like, the silence of an artist and the fact that this question hasn't been answered yet, even though it's been a few years, just leaves the door open for all these kind of ideas. And who knows, maybe hype for a future album. So I feel like overall, you know, as, as I mentioned before, maybe the planning of the three months of a split between one album and another isn't the best marketing. I feel like this is, this is a good thing because to this day, I, st I still don't know what that album's all about. Exactly. And at the end of the day, we can always question whether or not an artist should have released an album on X date instead of Y date. But at the end of the day, the artist makes their choice. As listeners, we have to live by it. And ultimately, only time will tell as to whether or not they truly made the right decision in terms of whether or not a particular album got as much success as it could, right? Because when you think about releasing an album, usually you release your lead single first because that's the teaser so to speak as to what the album's going to be about you let that live its course that might take a few months then you might release your second single or like a promo single to increase some more hype and then depending on your feelings on the success of the two singles you can either drop the album in its entirety a few months after that or you can continue releasing more singles until you feel comfortable dropping the whole project. And that's usually what a lot of artists end up doing. So with Lana Del Rey, if we look at this particular album, Let Me Love You Like a Woman was released on October 16th, 2020. The second single, Chemtrails Over the Country Club, was released on January 11th. So that took about like two or three months mm -hmm. to live its course. And then... The, the rest of the two singles were released uh, the same day that the album was released. Or actually, I lied. According to this, it was actually released the week after the album was released, which is interesting. But the point is, usually, you want to give your audience a taste of what your album is going to be like instead of just dropping the whole thing. Now, one thing that can derail an artist's plans a lot of the time are weeks. Yeah. Especially when your entire album gets leaked. Like Ariana Grande, I heard, right? Lots of artists get their albums leaked all the time. Now, the one example I know off the top of my head is Dua Lipa's Future Nostalgia. Yeah, that was it. That was heartbreaking for her because she originally wanted to release it that like first week of April. But because of the leaks... She had to release it earlier. She ended up releasing it, I think, March 27th or something like that. So it sucks. But at the end of the day, the artist has to live with the results. And like I said, it's unfortunate. But what are you going to do? There's only so much you can control at that point. Transitioning back to the singles. White Dress. Very interesting because of its lyricism. But also, I think many people would consider this to be the best single of this album. And I actually agree with that. 
White Dress and Tulsa Jesus Freak, which I'll get to in just a second. Those are probably the top two singles, in my opinion. Especially with White Dress being the opening track of the album, it makes sense. Usually you want to put your best stuff first. At least that's how I would see it. That's a rule of thumb in almost everything. Like, assume that you've never heard Lana Del Rey before and you hear this banger. You're going to listen to the rest of the album. But if the first song doesn't captivate your, your attention, and then it's one of those save the best for last things, someone might not get to that point of the album. You know? Exactly. So by including it first, you at least guarantee they've heard the best that you got. And if they judge you after that, that's on them. Exactly. And at the end of the day, every artist has their own style as to how they want to format the album. But unless you're a household name, you got to be able to entice the listener. We talk about it all the time with news stories and journalism, right? The lead is always what grabs the reader's attention. You always got to make it snappy. You got to make it important. You got to get your point across. With albums, it's the same concept. Now, with White Dress in particular, it primarily focuses on her life before fame. And she ultimately poses the question of whether or not she would have been better off without fame. It's a lot of things that a lot of artists have addressed previously in their music. But this one is very interesting because... She uses the color white a lot. And when we think of white, it's usually related to like purity and yeah. innocence and stuff of that nature. So I like the play that she did there. And ultimately, it's about how she's not pleased with her public lifestyle. Now, I'm going to read you some of the lines from the actual song. And I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are about this. Sure thing. I'm, I'm so let's here. just look at the chorus. So she says, when I was a waitress wearing a white dress... Look how I do this. Look how I got this. I was a waitress working the night shift. You were my man. Felt like I got this. Down at the men in the music business conference down in Orlando, I was only 19. Now, in 19, she spent a lot of her time in Florida, thus the reference. But also, I really like how waitress and white dress, if you say it fast enough... It sounds the same almost, or it sounds very similar. So that's one thing I particularly like about that line. But the style, if you listen to it, sounds exactly the way Lana Del Rey would do it. It's very eerie. It's very kind of piercing. It it gets to you, man. It really does. And ultimately, that kind of vocal contrast is personally why I like that particular track. But even... Tulsa Jesus Freak, which, huh, ironically, was originally named White Hot Forever, like the album. Ultimately, both names ended up changing, but Tulsa Jesus Freak is very interesting because it's about a breakup with a lover in the Midwest. And you might be wondering, why is that important? She actually dated a police officer who was originally from Tulsa called Sean Larkin. Now, I hate to speculate on whether or not that potential breakup in real life is important to this particular song. However, you could argue at least it had some kind of an impact, for sure. And there's one particular part of the song that I thought to be very interesting, and I wrote in my notes how Basically, she pokes a lot at the idea of a perfect couple, right? She talks about the ideal couple being white, hot, and Christian. Hmm. And think about it for a second here. 
when we talk about the 1950s and 1960s in America, you can argue that was the ideal couple at that time. Now, obviously, nowadays, with all the rules changing and with people being more accepting nowadays, yeah. that has definitely changed. But I find it very interesting how she incorporates a lot of these mindsets and different references from that time period and yet makes it very relevant to today even which i find to be very interesting definitely now i feel like it's it's more highlighting what was wrong back then for it to be like only like that i'm not trying to be a social justice warrior here but what i mean is just just mentioning something like that would trigger some people and artists that tend to be controversial aren't that radio friendly so the way she designed this was more of like raising, I guess, like going, looking back at it, reminiscing about what it was like back then, but remaining accurate. And you can't unwrite history, you know? But she did add her own spin to it. And plus, if correct me if I'm wrong, but could she, could she match that description? What do you mean? Uh, like white, Christian? Possibly. I mean, it could be. We I, I don't know too much about Lana Del Rey to make that kind of... Um, yes, but go ahead. The reason I ask is just because, like, I realize white dress seems pretty anecdotal. And, like, one thing I like about Lana Del Rey's music is that you can sing it, but it won't mean as much to you as it meant to her when she wrote it. And I feel like with this song, I don't, I can't tell if, like, she's just writing this as, like, a, how do I say it, like, creative freedom of expression? Or whether this has some sort of hidden meaning that only means something to her. I mean, ultimately, when you have a songwriter like Lana Del Rey or even Taylor Swift, for example, they write songs that are personal to them, yet can be personal for their audience. Ah. And I think that's what she was trying to go with here with that particular song. Obviously, it is very personal to her, as a lot of her songs are. But at the end of the day, if you're a listener listening to the song, you want to be able to relate. Otherwise... Chances are you're not going to listen to it if you're not related to it at all. So at the end of the day, this particular album, in my opinion, is one of her best works. But it's not the best work that she's done. And what would that be, Anthony? I'm dying to know. Oh, (laughs) we'll get there in due time. But first, let's go over her career, shall we? Of course. So her first album, many of you might have forgotten about this because it doesn't exist anymore. It's actually called Lana Del Rey. Now, you might be wondering, how is that special? So, if you guys know how to spell Lana Del Rey, her last name is actually R-E-Y. Now, with their debut studio album, it's actually R-A-Y. So, it's different. Now, again, for those of you that don't know, her real name is Elizabeth Grant. It's not Lana Del Rey. It's a stage name that she made. And her first stage name actually was Lizzie Grant, which Mm. is very interesting. But yeah, Lana Del Rey, the name is based off of her travels to Miami and her time speaking Spanish with her friends from Cuba. Now, James, as a Spanish speaker, I I know you love this. But at the end of the day, other influences with particular name, there's an actress called Lena Turner. Mm. And there was also a Ford car called Del Rey, which was primarily sold in Brazil during the 1980s. Mm. So again, bringing in different pop culture moments from previous time periods and yet it has an influence on her music today which is insane to think about i do want to add something lana del rey means the money of the king i don't know if that's relevant in any way but that's literally what it means 
I mean, maybe it is. I don't know. Do you think it fits her description very well? I mean, well? not at all. But hey, yo, it could be worse. Like Post Malone, like we had mentioned before, that's a random ass name. This she put thought into. And like, I didn't even know her name was Elizabeth Grant. Like, I don't know. Our, our speakers, sorry, our audience can't see us. But like, my eyebrows raised a little bit. I'm like, that's a pretty cool name. Your parents gave you all the freedom of the world to call you Lana Del Rey. And then you, Anthony, you break my heart. I didn't know her name wasn't that. Yeah, her name is Elizabeth Woolridge Grant. That is her real name, folks. And at the end of the day, we know her for Lana Del Rey, but her family knows her as Elizabeth Grant. Going back to her debut album for a second, I mentioned earlier, you guys probably have never heard of it. That's because, very interestingly enough, she initially signed a record deal with a record label called Five Points. Now, this record label does not exist anymore. The reason being, it just didn't have the funds to make it work. So with this particular album, it did not chart at all on any charts of any kind. Whether or not it was because the album got pulled from all retailers could have had a possible impact, or maybe the album just wasn't as good. The point is, Five Points couldn't fund it, so they had to pull it from the shelves and luckily for Miss Lana Del Rey, she was able to get out of her contract with Five Points. And she signed a new deal with Interscope Records and Polydor Records to release her second studio album, Born to Die. Now, Born to Die has six singles, video games, obviously the title track, Born to Die, Blue Jeans, Summertime Sadness, National Anthem, and Dark Paradise. Now, video games, I believe, was the single or the song, so to speak, that ultimately propelled her to fame yes video games it's about this girl trying to love a guy even though the guy has doesn't want anything to do with her essentially and at the end of the day it's a baroque pop ballad (laughs) which is interesting and i also find interesting with a lot of her work is that they are very ballad-esque and depending on some people's tastes it can be really boring Or maybe people are into that kind of thing. Adele, for example, right? You can argue a lot of her songs kind of fit a similar mold. Yeah. Where it isn't super upbeat. It's not always the flashiest. But it delivers in terms of sales. And at the end of the day, it's what's made her successful. Now, with this particular album, it was released in 2012. Now... 2010s was all about EDM, right? We have TikTok, California Girls, and others. Dynamite by Tail Cruz. I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, around the same time frame where essentially it's very upbeat. It's very dance friendly. It has a lot of the electronic influence. Lana Del Rey kind of sticks to the quote unquote organic sound. And it's very cinematic. Now, it's interesting because a lot of people thought Born to Die was very similar to video games, which may partly be the reason why video games did as well as it did. Because although Born to Die deals with a doomed relationship, they're both ballads. Mm -hmm. So there's only so much of one particular style someone can listen to from the same artist. But... Here's the interesting thing that I found about Lana Del Rey. Summertime Sadness. Oh, yes. It was originally a sleeper hit. 
it lyrically deals with the atmosphere during one summer, once upon a time, where she danced with someone that she had a lot of feelings for, and she really enjoyed it. Now, the interesting thing is that this original version did not do as well as the remix that was made by Cedric Gervais. Yes. That peaked at number six on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. As I told you before, it is the only song of hers throughout her career to peak in the top 10. Honestly, I'm not surprised. Now, that does that's not a diss to Lana Del Rey. But what I mean is, like, everyone knows that song so much that it just overshadows anything she's ever put out since. Now, if there was a second song anywhere near the view viewership and the recognition that summertime sadness has then you can make the claim but like i don't even want to know how those other songs underperformed like sincerely also i'm curious if they don't make that remix do we have the do we have the same lana del rey that we have today honestly i don't know because you can argue the remix actually feeds more into the trends of that time right very kind of Although it's not heavily inspired, it's a lot more EDM-esque. And friendly. Because in, in that time, that beep, beep, beep was what people were looking for. You can release a hit like Thriller. Today, I'm not sure it's going to have the same pop that it did. No pun intended. The same pop that it did in the 80s. Exactly. And with artists, it's all about, yes, finding trends and using them to the best of their abilities. But they got to make it different and unique to themselves as artists. Don't hop on a trend just because it's popular. I mentioned this so many times with Justin Bieber. You have to be able to take a trend and make it unique to yourself. Because at the end of the day, there's only so many 80s inspired songs I can listen to now. And there's only so many EDM songs I can listen to during that time back in the 2010s. So... Although that's her most popular song, it's interesting because that's the only song I would argue that's very kind of EDM inspired. Now, I'm not saying Lana Del Rey should have went towards EDM because ultimately at the end of the day, it's about putting out music that you enjoy and that you want to do. Don't put out music because it's popular, right? Don't put it out for the awards or the fame. And though, yes... That is what ultimately pays their bills. It's ultimately what gives them the fame and the recognition, the attention that they get. But I just find it to be very interesting because when we think of Lana Del Rey, she often isn't mentioned along with a lot of the other elite female pop artists, like the ones that exist today. And James, I have to ask you, do you think it's because of her style? Because I mean, she's been around for a while. She's put out a lot of songs. A lot of them are hits in their own right. I've got the perfect anecdote for you. What's up? So one day we were blasting Don't Call Me an Angel by Ariana Grande, Miley Cyrus, and Lana Del Rey. I won't lie to you. Miley Cyrus was the one that I didn't recognize until I searched it up on my phone. But with Lana Del Rey and Ariana, they had such contrasting styles. Now, while you can distinguish them and they're unique in their own right, people want to hear Ariana Grande more because of the energy it drives. With Lana Del Rey, it can suck the energy out of you. Or you have to have a specific kind of taste for music. And I just feel like that's ultimately the, the death contract that she signed by making this her style. But she owned up to it. 
And it's too late. She's too deep into it now to change. Because if you hear her singing country or soul or soul pop, you'll be like, this is not Lana Del Rey. And she'll lose the loyal following that she already has. So I guess, just to answer that question, yeah, she's a product of her own success, I guess. And hey, you know, if what's driving her is the is the views, then do what Drake did and release Mia. No, I'm kidding, yo. But on a serious note. I, or release a Tootsie Slide <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. for the, the TikTok fans. Yeah. No, but um, no, you're absolutely right because ironically, Don't Call Me Angel is her second highest peaking song on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. It peaked at number 13. So you're absolutely right. And I do agree, right? Because of the style that she is doing, not everyone can listen to it. It's a very unique, specific style that only certain people want to listen to. So for that reason, it makes sense as to why maybe she's not as popular as she is. However, with that being said, that does not mean she's a lesser artist because of it, right? Because she's a great songwriter and a great lyricist in her own right. But I think because she doesn't have that kind of mainstream fame, a lot of people forget about her. And it's unfortunate, but at the end of the day, music is a business. Yes. And only the hottest names get the most attention. And you can argue with Lana Del Rey. Although, yes, she is a staple. Is she the hottest name right now? We can argue otherwise. Honestly, the perfect test is just to ask people on the street. Maybe once COVID clears up, you know, name me one Lana Del Rey song. I'm not going to lie. How long has it been since Summertime Sadness came out? I, I don't know. But like, that's the only one that people will have any remote remembrance of. Whereas like a somewhat successful artist, like maybe, uh, let's see, Carly Rae Jepsen, you know, mm-hmm. is irrelevant now. Sure. You can name a song from her. Well, only two really. Call Me Maybe and Good Time. The one with Owl City. Yeah. But with well, Lana Del Rey, like, she has great music out, but for some reason, like people just don't recognize it. And I, we had mentioned this before. She's more of an album than singles artist. She's like the reverse Justin Bieber, you know? I definitely agree. And so I feel like in terms of like overall respect that people have for her, it's out there. But in terms of like re- recognizing her songs individually, you'd have to be a fan. Relatively to the other huge artists, there's not as many Lana Del Rey fans outright that like they'll know a song off of their top of their head. Exactly. And you can argue whether or not that's a product of her style or if it's because of the blunders she's had early on in her career. As I mentioned earlier, her original record label didn't really support her as well as they could have. She had to ultimately sign elsewhere. And at the end of the day, man, you pretty much nailed it on the head, right? Pop, I've said this before and I'll say it again. It's mainly known for singles, right? When we think of the most popular pop artists today, it's mainly because of singles they put out. A lot of albums, yes, people might know what they are, but let's face it, usually you don't blast albums from cover to cover, at least from pop artists, usually listen to their singles. With Lana Del Rey, it's kind of the opposite. A lot of singles that she's put out, not necessarily the most successful if we're talking about chart numbers, Mm -hmm. but... She has put out a lot of great albums, and you can argue those have done a lot better than a lot of pop artists of today's time. Moving on to a little bit of a tangent, right? She put out a song called Young and Beautiful, which 
also charted really well. But it was released for the movie The Great Gatsby. I don't know if you remember it. Kind of a love cinematic type of deal. But I feel like that kind of movie definitely fit her style very much. And I think she was the perfect choice for this movie. And Young and Beautiful deals with whether or not love can truly last. It's a question people ask themselves every day. Or they choose not to think about it most of the time. But the song did really well. Moving quickly, just a little bit. The next three albums, Ultra Violence, Honeymoon, and Lust for Life. All very different in their own right. Ultra Violence is kind of psychedelic rock. Honeymoon kind of returns to that Baroque pop style that is very prevalent in her career. And Lust for Life was kind of viewed as a return to the hip-hop-inspired sound she had on Born to Die. So, when we look at these three albums as a whole, we really think of three or four songs, right? Um, With Ultra Violence, the lead single was West Coast. It mainly deals with a woman being torn between love and ambition, while obviously talking about the West Coast, Mm -hmm. that's the name of the title. Um, A lot of people said it was more guitar-oriented compared to her previous albums. Makes sense. Usually ballads are more kind of piano-inspired. So, makes a lot of sense. But I will say, I mean, you always got to try new stuff. I don't think people should, you know, berate her for trying something new. Because at the end of the day, I don't know. I'm of the mindset that, like, I want to hear as much of an artist as possible while they're still relevant. Because it's usually when they fall out of the public eye that they start trying this this stuff. Think about it. When you have no one to listen to, like when barely people any any people listen to you anymore, you try stuff because there's no risk. But when you're at the top of your game, trying some stuff can be very risky because you don't know how the public will receive it. Exactly. And especially if, let's say, your debut album does really well. That's why a lot of people say that second album is very, very stressful. Because... When your first album does really well, everyone has these expectations of what you should do with your second album. But ultimately, it's up to the artist as to how they want to improve upon their first album when making their second one. It's their responsibility to make sure that that kind of outside pressure doesn't get to them when making that second album, or any album that they make throughout the course of their career. And I think Lana Del Rey has done a good job of doing just that. However, going back to her discography, High by the Beach the lead single off of Honeymoon. Now, this is a good track because I feel like it was like the perfect transition between Honeymoon and Lust for Life because High by the Beach is very hip-hop influenced, although it's a synth track pop ballad. And as you can tell by the title, it's pretty self-explanatory. It's about her visiting the beach. Very, again, very cinematic, very summer-esque And it's very interesting because she does a lot of songs that deal with, like, the summer. So you would think she's, like, a very warm, very inviting artist. No. Not even close. Like, she deals with a lot of stuff, like, bitterness, lusts, tortured romance, violence. She's pretty dark, man. Pretty, pretty dark. But Lust for Life, as I mentioned earlier, the lead single for that was Love. And again, pretty self-explanatory. It deals with love. Lust for Life featuring The Weeknd. I mentioned this in the Weeknd episode. 
their collabs, man, are so good because their styles are very similar. Yeah. And what I mean by that, obviously, The Weeknd is not very cinematic. He's not kind of Baroque pop-esque. What I mean by that is they both deal with very dark topics. They both like to go that dark route. So when you put those two artists together, it works really well. And Lust for Life, it's a dream pop song that is reminiscent of 1960s music. Obviously, we talk about Lana Del Rey. 1960s music so it works <laughs> with groups like the shangri-las and the angels it felt it felt like it was like the perfect blend between the two artists and that's why i personally think if you're gonna put a collaboration together of two people that deal with dark topics it's not a random weekend like it's it's an obvious pairing now the best album of her career in my opinion and in many critics opinion is norman effing rockwell <laughs> it's a soft rock album it has a mix of piano ballads with just your typical style and psychedelic rock songs which are in a few of her albums as well the name of the album is actually a reference to the illustrator and painter called norman rockwell who would have guessed it who yeah would've... right who, who would have guessed that <laughs> it's interesting though because this album is actually the most critically acclaimed in the sense that it was nominated for Album of the Year at the Grammys that year. And the title track, Norman Effing Rockwell, was nominated for Song of the Year wow. that year. Now, James, I've said it a million times. Who do you think won that year? Oh, my God. The most mainstream artist, Justin Bieber or something. No, man. Billie Eilish. Oh, It was God. the year she swept all the major categories. <laughs> and, yeah, unfortunately for Lana, she didn't win anything. I believe, actually, she doesn't even have any Grammys to this point. Wow. Which is very disappointing, but for me, it's not surprising, considering her, I said it before, her, I guess, lack of... Singles, like, single song success. Exactly. Now, there's a lot of great songs on this album, but just to name quite a bunch, Mariner's Apartment Complex, Venice, B-Word... Hope is a dangerous thing for a woman like me to have, but I have it. Yes, that is the entire title. Wait, Very long. Wait, I'm laughing because like I just realized Venice Beach, but she did a play on words. Exactly. <laughs> it's the same thing where she did Waitress in White Dress. Very uh, clever wordplay. She also has other songs like Doing Time, The Greatest, Norman F. Rockwell, as I mentioned earlier, Cinnamon Girl, and F It, I Love You. Which goes, F it, I love you. And it's it's New, very catchy, very repetitive. New ringtone. Ha, huh, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, a lot of people consider this to be one of the best albums of the decade, actually. Which is a lot of praise for this particular album. Wow. Which is why when people were reviewing Chemtrails Over the Country Club, a lot of people said, well, it's a great album, but not as great as Norman Effing Rockwell. Huh, which is interesting but obviously, Norman Effing Rockwell for Lana Del Rey was just one of those projects that kind of immortalized her in music history books. However, Doing Time is actually very interesting because that's actually the highest peaking song off of that album. It peaked at number 59 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart, which is very surprising. And ultimately, Doing Time is a cover of a song with the same name, obviously, by the band Sublime. 
Now, Sublime was a reggae rock ska punk band who were mainly known for their songs Do In Time, What I Got, Santeria, and Wrong Way. Lana Del Rey's version of their song Do In Time is pretty good, but Norman Ephraim Rockwell, let's talk for a second. It deals with an immature, pretentious man like a lot of her songs, but I find it to be very interesting that this was the song that the Grammys chose to nominate for Song of the Year. And although Norman Effing Rockwell is a great song, I think the Grammys had a lot of other great options in this album to choose from for Song of the Year, such as Mariner's Apartment Complex, which was the lead single, might I add, and Hope is a Dangerous Thing for a Woman Like Me to Have, but I have it. However, James, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on that particular album? I'll be honest with you, man. I'm open to any facets of music, and the reception that it got gave me the impression that She's just getting better as an artist. And I feel like I have to respect that. I'll be honest with you. I haven't listened to much of her music. But if this is the best that she's got, I can see why she's one of the most renowned artists. Um, and what I love the most about it is that it takes a specific kind of person to like it. But you can't say that she doesn't have the skills and the talents. Because there's lyricism involved. There's the rhythm. There's that. Like, you can't replicate it. Even if you were trying and that in and of itself makes her albums just impossible to to not appreciate. Like, she's not the kind of person to release offensive things or, or do it just for the sake of attention. It always has purpose. Exactly. And at the end of the day, we said it before and I'll say it again. Lana Del Rey, when you think of her, she is more of an album kind of girl compared to singles. And that's what a lot of pop artists rely on to become very popular. At the end of the day, Lana Del Rey will be remembered for having great cohesive projects. Now, a lot of pop artists tend not to have that just because of the fact that, let's face it, they're more focused on making singles that can stay forever on the charts. But I'm happy for her. Chemtrails over the country club. We mentioned it earlier. And honestly, it's not going to have that long of a shelf life just because Rock Candy Sweet is scheduled to come out in early June. But looking at Lana Del Rey's career as a whole, people ultimately know her for two things. Her very gloomy, sad writing mm -hmm. and the fact that she's probably one of the best songwriters out there. Oh, yes. When we think of arguably the two best songwriters, we think of Lana Del Rey and, and we Taylor think of Taylor Swift. Swift. Yep. Those are the two right off the bat. And... You can argue that Taylor Swift has become more popular because of the fact that she's been all over the place. She's been in country. She's been in pop. She's now in indie. But with Lana Del Rey, she's been very, very consistent. Exactly. Very consistent in the way that she's been able to present her style of music. And at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. And I'm interested to see what Rock Candy Sweet has to offer whether or not it'll be very similar to chemtrails over the country club that's a question i have but until that comes out there's nothing else i can really say about it so from james and i here at the a and j tunes podcast i want to thank you for listening and stay tuned because another episode will be coming relatively soon catch you guys take care